This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapters 35 and 36. Chapter 35 but next morning, at the first bend of the river shutting off the houses of Patizan, all this dropped out of my sight bodily, with its colour, its design, and its meaning, like a picture created by fancy on a canvas, upon which, after long contemplation, you turn your back for the last time. It remains in the memory, motionless, unfaded, with its life arrested, in an unchanging light, there are the ambitions, the fears, the hate, the hopes, and they remain in my mind just as I had seen them, intense and as if forever suspended in their expression. I had turned away from the picture, and was going back to the world where events move, men change, light flickers, life flows in a clear stream, no matter whether over mud or over stones. I wasn't going to dive into it, I would have enough to do to keep my head above the surface. But as to what I was leaving behind, I cannot imagine any alteration. The immense and magnanimous Doramine, with his little motherly witch of a wife, gazing together upon the land and nursing secretly their dreams of parental ambition, Tunku Alang, wizened and greatly perplexed, Dain Waris, intelligent and brave, with his faith in Jim, and his firm glance, and his ironic friendliness, the girl absorbed in her frightened and suspicious adoration, Tom Tom, surly and faithful, Cornelius leaning his forehead against the fence under the moonlight, I am certain of them. They exist as if under an enchanter's wand, but the figure round which all of these are grouped, that one lives, and I am not certain of him. No magician's wand can immobilize him under my eyes. He is one of us. Jim, as I have told you, accompanied me on the first stage of my journey back to the world he had renounced, and the way at times seemed to lead through the very heart of untouched wilderness. The empty reaches sparkled under the high sun. Between the high walls of vegetation the heat drowsed upon the water, and the boat, impelled vigorously, cut her way through air that seemed to have settled dense and warm under the shelter of lofty trees. The shadow of the impending separation had already put an immense space between us, and when we spoke it was with an effort as if to force our low voices across a vast and increasing distance. The boat fairly flew, we sweltered side by side in the stagnant superheated air, the smell of mud, of mush, the primeval smell of fecund earth seemed to sting our faces, till suddenly at a bend it was as if a great hand far away had lifted a heavy curtain, had flung open an immense portal. The light itself seemed to stir, the sky above our heads widened, a far-off murmur reached our ears, a freshness enveloped us, filled our lungs, quickened our thoughts, our blood, our regrets, and straight ahead the forest sank down against the dark blue ridge of the sea. 
I breathed deeply. I reveled in the vastness of the opened horizon, in the different atmosphere that seemed to vibrate with the toil of life, with the energy of an impeccable world. This sky and this sea were open to me. The girl was right. There was a sign, a call in them, something to which I responded with every fibre of my being. I let my eyes roam through space, like a man released from bonds who stretches his cramped limbs, runs, leaps, responds to the inspiring elation of freedom. This is glorious, I cried. And then I looked at the sinner by my side. He sat with his head sunk on his breast, and said, Yes, without raising his eyes, as if afraid to see writ large on the clear sky of the offing, the reproach of his romantic conscience. I remember the smallest details of that afternoon. We landed on a bit of white beach. It was backed by a low cliff, wooded on the brow, draped in creepers to the very foot. Below us the plain of the sea, of a serene and intense blue, stretched with a slight upward tilt to the thread-like horizon drawn at the height of our eyes. Great waves of glitter blew lightly along the pitted dark surface, as swift as feathers chased by the breeze. A chain of islands sat broken and massive, facing the wide estuary, displayed in a sheet of pale glassy water, reflecting faithfully the contour of the shore. High in the colourless sunshine a solitary bird, all black, hovered, dropping and soaring above the same spot with a slight rocking motion of the wings. A ragged, sooty bunch of flimsy mat hovels was perched over its own inverted image upon a crooked multitude of high piles the colour of ebony. A tiny black canoe put off from amongst them with two tiny men, all black, who toiled exceedingly, striking down at the pale water and the canoe seemed to slide painfully on a mirror. This bunch of miserable hovels was the fishing village that boasted of the white lord's especial protection, and the two men crossing over were the old headman and his son-in-law. They landed and walked up to us on the white sand, lean, dark brown as if dried in smoke, with ashy patches on the skin of their naked shoulders and breasts, their heads were bound in dirty but carefully folded headkerchiefs, and the old man began at once to state a complaint, voluble, stretching a lank arm, screwing up at Jim his old bleared eyes confidently. The Raja's people would not leave them alone. There had been some trouble about a lot of turtles' eggs his people had collected on the islets there and leaning at arm's length upon his paddle, he pointed with a brown skinny hand over the sea. Jim listened for a time without looking up, and at last told him gently to wait. He would hear him by and by. They withdrew obediently to some little distance, and sat on their heels with their paddles lying before them on the sand. The silvery gleams in their eyes followed our movements patiently, and the immensity of the outspread sea, the stillness of the coast passing north and south beyond the limits of my vision, made up one colossal presence watching us four dwarfs isolated on a strip of glistening sand. "'The trouble is,' remarked Jim moodily, 
that for generations these beggars of fishermen in that village there had been considered as the Rajah's personal slaves, and that old Rip can't get it into his head that... He paused. That you have changed all that, I said. Yes, I've changed all that, he muttered in a gloomy voice. You have had your opportunity, I pursued. Have I? he said. Well, yes, I suppose so. Yes, I've got back my confidence in myself. A good name. Yet sometimes I... I wish... No, I shall hold what I've got. Can't expect anything more. He flung his arm out towards the sea. Not out there, anyhow. He stamped his foot upon the sand. This is my limit, because nothing less will do. We continued pacing the beach. Yes, I've, I've changed all that, he went on, with a sidelong glance at the two patient squatting fishermen. But only try to think what it would be if I went away. Jove, can't you see it? Hell loose. No. Tomorrow I shall go and take my chance of drinking that silly old Tunku Alang's coffee, and I shall make no end of fuss over these rotten turtle's eggs. No, I can't say enough. Never. I must go on. Go on forever holding up my end, to feel sure that nothing can touch me. I must stick to their belief in me, to feel safe, and to... to... He cast about for a word, seemed to look for it on the sea. To keep in touch with... His voice sank suddenly to a murmur. With those whom perhaps I shall never see any more. With... with... Uh, you, for instance. I was profoundly humbled by his words... "'For God's sake,' I said, "'don't set me up, my dear fellow. "'Just look to yourself.' "'I felt a gratitude and affection for that straggler "'whose eyes had singled me out, "'keeping my place in the ranks of an insignificant multitude. "'How little that was to boast of, after all. "'I turned my burning face away. "'Under the low sun, glowing, darkened, and crimson, "'like an ember snatched from the fire,' The sea lay outspread, offering all its immense stillness to the approach of the fiery orb. Twice he was going to speak, but checked himself. At last, as if he had found a formula. "'I shall be faithful,' he said quietly. "'I shall be faithful.' He repeated, without looking at me, but for the first time letting his eyes wander upon the waters, whose blueness had changed to a gloomy purple under the fires of sunset, Ah, he was romantic, romantic. I recalled some words of Stein. In the destructive element immerse. To follow the dream, and again to follow the dream. And always, so, usque ad finem. He was romantic, but none the less true. Who could tell what forms, what visions, what faces, what forgiveness he could see in the glow of the west. A small boat, leaving the schooner, moved slowly with a regular beat of two oars, 
towards the sandbank to take me off. "'And then there's Jewel,' he said, out of the great silence of earth, sky, and sea, which had mastered my very thoughts so that his voice made me start. "'There's Jewel.' "'Yes,' I murmured. "'I need not tell you what she is to me,' he pursued. "'You've seen. In time she will come to understand—' "'I hope so,' I interrupted. "'She trusts me, too,' he mused, and then changed his tone. "'When shall we meet next, I wonder?' he said. "'Never, unless you come out,' I answered, avoiding his glance. He didn't seem to be surprised. He kept very quiet for a while. "'Good-bye, then,' he said, after a pause. "'Perhaps it's just as well.' We shook hands, and I walked to the boat, which waited with her nose on the beach. The schooner, her mainsail set and jib-sheet to the windward, curveted on the purple sea. There was a rosy tinge on her sails. "'Will you be going home again soon?' asked Jim, just as I swung my leg over the gunwale. "'In a year or so, if I live,' I said. The forefoot grated on the sand. The boat floated, the wet oars flashed and dipped once, twice. Jim, at the water's edge, raised his voice. "'Tell them,' he began. I signed to the men to cease rowing and waited in wonder. "'Tell who?' The half-submerged sun faced him. I could see its red gleam in his eyes that looked dumbly at me. "'No, nothing,' he said and with a slight wave of his hand motioned the boat away. I did not look again at the shore until I had clambered on board the schooner. By that time the sun had set. The twilight lay over the east, and the coast, turned black, extended infinitely its sombre wall that seemed the very stronghold of the night. The western horizon was one great blaze of gold and crimson, in which a big detached cloud floated dark and still casting a slaty shadow on the water beneath, and I saw Jim on the beach watching the schooner fall off and gather headway. The two half-naked fishermen had arisen as soon as I had gone. They were no doubt pouring the plaint of their trifling, miserable, oppressed lives into the ears of the white lord, and no doubt he was listening to it, making it his own. For was it not part of his luck the luck from the word go, the luck to which he had assured me he was so completely equal. They, too, I should think, were in luck, and I was sure their pertinacity would be equal to it. Their dark-skinned bodies vanished on the dark background long before I had lost sight of their protector. He was white from head to foot, and remained persistently visible, with the stronghold of the night at his back, the sea at his feet the opportunity by his side, still veiled. What do you say? Was it still veiled? <laughs> I don't know. For me, that white figure in the stillness of coast and sea seemed to stand at the heart of a vast enigma. The twilight was ebbing fast from the sky above his head. The strip of sand had sunk already under his feet. He himself appeared no bigger than a child then only a speck, 
a tiny white speck that seemed to catch all the light left in a darkened world. And, suddenly, I lost him. Chapter 36 With these words Marlow had ended his narrative, and his audience had broken up forthwith, under his abstract, pensive gaze. Men drifted off the veranda in pairs or alone, without loss of time, without offering a remark, as if the last image of that incomplete story, its incompleteness itself, and the very tone of the speaker had made discussion in vain and comment impossible. Each of them seemed to carry away his own impression, to carry it away with him like a secret. But there was only one man of all these listeners who was ever to hear the last word of the story. It came to him at home, more than two years later, and it came contained in a thick packet addressed in Marlowe's upright and angular handwriting. The privileged man opened the packet, looked in, then, laying it down, went to the window. His rooms were in the highest flat of a lofty building, and his glance could travel afar beyond the clear panes of glass, as though he were looking out of the lantern of a lighthouse. The slopes of the roofs glistened, the dark broken ridges succeeded each other without end, like sombre uncrested waves, and from the depths of the town under his feet ascended a confused and unceasing mutter. The spires of churches, numerous, scattered haphazard, uprose like beacons on a maze of shoals without a channel. The driving rain mingled with the fading dusk of a winter's evening, and the booming of a big clock on a tower striking the hour rolled past in voluminous, austere bursts of sound, with a shrill vibrating cry at the core. He drew the heavy curtains. The light of his shaded reading lamp slept like a sheltered pool. His footfalls made no sound on the carpet. His wandering days were over. No more horizons as boundless as hope. No more twilights within the forests as solemn as temples, in the hot quest for the ever-undiscovered country over the hill, across the stream, beyond the wave. The hour was striking. No more. No more. But the opened packet under the lamp brought back the sounds, the visions, the very savour of the past, the multitude of fading faces, the tumult of low voices dying away upon the shores of distant seas under a passionate and unconsoling sunshine. He sighed and sat down to read. At first he saw three distinct enclosures, a good many pages closely blackened and pinned together, a loose square sheet of greyish paper with a few words traced in a handwriting he had never seen before, and an explanatory letter from Marlowe. From this last fell another letter, yellowed by time and frayed on the folds. He picked it up and, laying it aside, turned to Marlowe's message, ran swiftly over the opening lines, and, checking himself, thereafter read on deliberately, like one approaching with slow feet and alert eyes the glimpse of an undiscovered country. "'I don't suppose you've forgotten,' went on the letter, you alone have showed an interest in him that survived the telling of the story, though I remember well you would not admit he had mastered his fate. You prophesied for him the disaster of weariness and of disgust with acquired honour, 
with the self-appointed task, with the love sprung from pity and youth. You had said you knew so well that kind of thing, its illusory satisfaction, its unavoidable deception. You said also, I call to mind, that giving up your life to them, them meaning all mankind with skins brown, yellow, or black in color, was like selling your soul to a brute. You contended that uh, that kind of thing was only endurable and endearing when based on a firm conviction in the truth of ideas racially our own, in whose name are established the order, the morality of an ethical progress. We want its strength at our backs, you had said. We want a belief in its necessity and its justice to make a worthy and conscious sacrifice of our lives. Without it, the sacrifice is only forgetfulness. The way of offering is no better than the way to perdition. In other words, you maintain that we must fight in the ranks or our lives don't count. Possibly. You ought to know, be it said without malice, you who have rushed into one or two places single-handed and came out cleverly without singeing your wings. The point, however, is that of all mankind Jim had no dealings but with himself, and the question is whether at the last he had not confessed to a faith mightier than the laws of order and progress. I affirm nothing. Perhaps you may pronounce, after you've read. There is much truth, after all, in the common expression, under a cloud. It is impossible to see him clearly, especially as it is through the eyes of others that we take our last look at him. I have no hesitation in imparting to you all I know of the last episode that, as he used to say, had come to him. One wonders whether this was perhaps that supreme opportunity, that last and satisfying test for which I had always suspected him to be waiting, before he could frame a message to the impeccable world. You remember that when I was leaving him for the last time he had asked whether I would be going home soon, and suddenly cried after me, "'Tell them!' I had waited, curious all own, and hopeful too, only to hear him shout, "'No!' nothing. That was all, then, and there will be nothing more. There will be no message unless such as each of us can interpret for himself from the language of facts that are so often more enigmatic than the craftiest arrangement of words. He made, it is true, one more attempt to deliver himself, but that too failed, as you may perceive if you look at the sheet of greyish fool's cap enclosed here. He had tried to write, you notice the commonplace hand? It is headed, The Fort, Patizan. I suppose he had carried out his intention of making out of the house a place of defence. It was an excellent plan, a deep ditch, an earth wall topped by a palisade, and at the angles guns mounted on platforms to sweep each side of the square. Doramine had agreed to furnish him the guns and so each man of his party would know there was a place of safety, upon which every faithful partisan could rally in case of some sudden danger. All this showed his judicious foresight, his faith in the future. What he called my own people, the liberated captives of the Sharif, were to make a distinct quarter of Patizan with their huts and little plots of ground under the walls of the stronghold. Within he would be an invincible host in himself. 
the fort, Patizan. No date, as you observe. What is a number and a name to a day of days? It is also impossible to say whom he had in mind when he seized the pen. Stein, myself, the world at large, or was this only the aimless, startled cry of a solitary man confronted by his fate? An awful thing has happened, he wrote, before he flung the pen down for the first time. Look at the ink-blot resembling the head of an arrow under these words. After a while he had tried again, scrawling heavily, as if with a hand of lead, another line. I must now, at once... The pen had spluttered, and that time he gave it up. There's nothing more. He had seen a broad gulf that neither eye nor voice could span. I can understand this. He was overwhelmed by the inexplicable. He was overwhelmed by his own personality, the gift of that destiny which he had done his best to master. I send you also an old letter, a very old letter. It was found carefully preserved in his writing-case. It is from his father, and by the date you can see he must have received it a few days before he joined the Patna. Thus it must be the last letter he ever had from home. He had treasured it all these years. The good old parson fancied his sailor son. I've looked in at a sentence here and there. There is nothing in it except just affection. He tells his dear James that the last long letter from him was very honest and entertaining. He would not have him judge men harshly or hastily. There are four pages of it, easy morality and family news. Tom had taken orders. Carrie's husband had money losses. The old chap goes on equably trusting Providence in the established order of the universe, but alive to its small dangers and its small mercies. One can almost see him, grey-haired and serene in the inviolable shelter of his book-lined, faded, and comfortable study, where for forty years he had conscientiously gone over and over again the round of his little thoughts about faith and virtue, about the conduct of life, and the only proper manner of dying, where he had written so many sermons, where he sits talking to his boy over there on the other side of the earth. But what of the distance? Virtue is one all over the world, and there is only one faith, one conceivable conduct of life, one manner of dying. He hopes that his dear James will never forget that, quote, who once gives way to temptation in the very instant hazards his total depravity and everlasting ruin, therefore resolve fixedly never through any possible motives to do anything which you believe to be wrong. End quote. There is also some news of a favorite dog, and a pony which all you boys used to ride, had gone blind from old age and had to be shot. The old chap invokes heaven's blessing, the mother and all the girls then at home send their love. No, there is nothing much in that yellow frayed letter fluttering out of his cherishing grasp after so many years. It was never answered, but who can say what converse he may have held with all these placid, colourless forms of men and women peopling that quiet corner of the world, as free of danger or strife as a tomb? and breathing equably the air of undisturbed rectitude. It seems amazing that he should belong to it. 
he to whom so many things had come. Nothing ever came to them. They would never be taken unawares, and never be called upon to grapple with fate. Here they all are, evoked by the mild gossip of the father, all these brothers and sisters, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, gazing with clear unconscious eyes, while I seemed to see him, returned at last, no longer a mere white speck at the heart of an immense mystery, but full of stature, standing disregarded amongst their untroubled shapes, with a stern and romantic aspect, but always mute, dark, under a cloud. The story of the last events you will find in the few pages enclosed here. You must admit it is romantic beyond the wildest dreams of his boyhood, and yet there is to my mind a sort of a profound and terrifying logic to it, as if it were our imagination alone that could set loose upon us the might of an overwhelming destiny. The imprudence of our thoughts recoils upon our heads. Who toys with the sword shall perish by the sword. This astounding adventure, of which the most astounding part is that it is true, comes on as an unavoidable consequence. Something of the sort had to happen. You repeat this to yourself while you marvel that such a thing could happen in the year of grace before last. But it has happened, and there is no disputing its logic. I put it down here for you as though I had been an eyewitness. My information was fragmentary, but I fitted the pieces together, and there is enough of them to make an intelligible picture. I wonder how he would have related it himself. He had confided so much in me that at times it seems as though he must come in presently and tell the story in his own words, in his careless yet feeling voice, with his off-hand manner, a little puzzled, a little bothered, a little hurt, but now and then by a word or phrase giving one of these glimpses of his very own self that were never any good for purposes of orientation. It's difficult to believe he will never come. I shall never hear his voice again, nor shall I see his smooth tan and pink face with a white line on the forehead, and the youthful eyes darkened by excitement to a profound and unfathomable blue. End of chapters 35 and 36